You're listening to the Grieving Together Show, a podcast that journeys through grief with individuals, couples, and families who've experienced the loss of someone that they love. Hi, my name is Kelly Bro, co-founder of Redbird Ministries, a pro-life, pro-family, Catholic grief support ministry located in the Diocese of Lafayette, Louisiana. I'm sitting down today with grieving families who have been impacted by loss, asking specific questions. How they found healing and hope in the middle of the storm, the lessons they learned, and tips we can all use to survive loss while staying close to our faith. I encourage you to lean in and allow God to love you through our words and take to heart what these incredible families have endured and how they have rise above their suffering. We hope you enjoy today's show. Today's podcast features Franchelle Yeager and her sister Bree Head. Grieving sisters sharing their story of losing their brother Jared Mater and his journey through brain cancer. Franchelle Yeager is a co-founder of the Bellator Society, but mostly she's a spectacularly flawed follower of Jesus Christ. She and her husband have four sons and go back and forth about whether God gave them all boys because they are good at raising them or because he knows they need a lot of practice. She had a degree in theater and after a short-lived career upon the wicked stage, she maintains her craft by acting like she is keeping her head above water to do stuff on the internet. Head is a wife and stay-at-home mom to four beautiful children. In a previous life, she was an NICU nurse. Brie also is a contributor on Bellator Society's blog pages. It was not until the death of her 30-year-old brother that Brie felt a true chasm in her own faith. Please help us welcome Fran and Brie. All right, well, today we have joining us Fran Yeager and her sister Brie Head, and they're going to share their story about their brother Jared. And so I want to welcome the both of you to the Grieving Together show, and just thank you so much for saying yes to do this. I know that your story is going to touch other people. And um, this is really the first time that we've ever um, entered into the space of sibling grief. And so for y'all to say yes to this is incredible because um, this is where our Redbird wants to go, is to touch all the areas of loss. And um, just thank you for, for coming on this mission with us. And like I said, saying yes and opening your hearts to share with our, uh, our families. So thank you. Well- it's our pleasure to be here. And I want to say just, um, I'm Fran. And I'm Bree. If you can tell the difference in our voices, hopefully that little introduction just uh, at the beginning, I guess everybody oriented, but thank you for having us. Yes, and thank you. We are the, we are, uh, the two sisters of a family of six children. And um, it is one of our brothers who passed away about three years ago. Um, so I feel like we are just giving you a little uh, glimpse of just like maybe one third 
of the story because, you know, there are six of us and everybody's story is different. Um, I think ours is similar. Bree and I are about three years apart. We have a brother between us. So, you know, we were a bop, 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 a big Catholic family, but um, uh, Jared was number five and all of us experienced um, in his life, um, you know, him differently and, and, you know, his death differently as well. So hopefully we can uh, share our stories um, that, that will, you know, communicate to other people uh, just some of the differences in grief in terms of sibling grief as opposed to um, parent grief. Right. Um, I concur. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we usually don't have a problem I talking. Know, I know. <laughs> well, grief is heavy and it's hard and it's, uh, it's, I, once you get started and you start sharing, I find like it, it starts to ease up. But like that first Ryan always tells me is like the first five minutes, whenever you talk, you're like, like just grasping. I was like, yeah, because I'm trying yeah. to, I'm, not, I'm trying not to lose it. So yeah. in that first five minutes, I find like, even with myself, like having shared my story multiple times, I still struggle. So as we talk, it's going to get easier. Um, so I guess maybe the first thing, just maybe share with us, like what happened? Like, how did you find out about uh, Jared's diagnosis and how did that affect and impact your family? Right. Um, I'm Brie. And I think it was, it was an interesting summer. It was the um, late summer after I had just gotten married and Jared um, was deployed. Um, he was in San Diego or he, well, was, he was deployed a, to Japan. He was a, mm-hmm. Yes. But he had come home that summer and we had, he a, was a Marine. He was a Marine. Yes. And we um, had a big family barbecue uh, early that September. Um, and he went back to San Diego and um we got a random call from our mom. I was just, I happened to be at my sister's house. I was working as a nurse in Little Rock, Arkansas. My sister had um, three young children. And so it was my favorite place to be because I got to be around small children. Um, We got a phone call from my mom that said Jared had had an accident um, and it was not good and that he had been in intensive care for a couple of days Um, and he had been unconscious and through that accident, they did a MRI on his head and found that he had had a tumor and he was 20, 22 years old at the time. So I think initially, like it was a, that was, that was the first blow. Yeah, it was, it was, that definitely, that call was a shock for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, it was the first of a few shocks, but yeah, that was the first um, indication that we had that something was wrong. But even then we had um, a sense of almost rejoicing because we didn't have any idea of like the gravity of right. the situation. And we were just thankful that he was alive. Mm-hmm. Um, word was that he had been biking and had hit a, um, a log in the middle of uh, the trail that he was biking on. And so we all kind of were joking because that's what our family does when things are hard is that we <laughs> make jokes. We make lots of jokes, <laughs> sometimes inappropriate jokes. So we're like, your guardian or his guardian angel put a log in the middle of the road so that we could get a head CT so that we could find that there was a tumor and take care of it. And right. it's all going to be great. Yeah. And, and I think that continued, you know, it was a uh, Halloween weekend of that same year that I flew to San Diego with my mother. Um, and maybe that's the first time uh, Fran and I had kind of talked a little about when the grief hit. And I feel like 
maybe not totally, but I feel like that's when the grieving started for me mm-hmm. is I remember very specifically sitting in that room with my, you know, 22 year old brother. I was 29, newly married, just starting my life. I had just been through my twenties, you know, and here was my, my baby brother who was, um, you know, sitting in a neurosurgeon's office talking about his brain tumor. Um, and here was my mother sitting beside me and I'm holding her hand and he just looks like, you know, your typical 22 year old who's kind of irritated that his mom and big sister are there, you know, putting a cramp in his style. Um, and the, the neurosurgeon was very hopeful in his diagnosis um, at that time, he said, you know, this seems to be a benign type of tumor that I think we should take out because you could have seizures, but um, I don't expect to find anything cancerous. You're healthy. There's nothing wrong. I mean, you know, no, th- there were no indications of anything wrong with him. Right. And so we left that doctor's appointment hopeful. I mean, I'm a nurse. Um, and so I knew that just going under, you know, the procedure for brain surgery and, and just how delicate those areas are in your body. That was where my fear was. Um, I just wanted him to get through the surgery and recover because I knew all of those things would be very hard. And, and I felt sad for him to be so young and have to go through it. But I also knew he's so young, he's going to heal great from this Mm -hmm. and move on with his life. Um, so I think, the second blow really was the day of surgery. Um, I don't know where you were that day. I was at work um, was at taking yeah. care of a neurosurgery um, patient. Um, it was a, I was a NICU nurse and I had a baby that had to have surgery that morning. And I remember getting the baby prepared for surgery, taking the child down and going on my morning break. And that's when I got the phone call mm-hmm. in the break room that, um, that this was, this was bad. This was not what we wanted and that he had, um, what was the name of the first diagnosis? Wasn't it glioblastoma? It wasn't glio, it it, it progressed to glioblastoma. Mm -hmm. It was a, it was a astrocytoma. I think that's right. I believe so. Um, which was less manageable. It was manageable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was less serious, but still like that. It wasn't, needed resection. Right. It needed resection and monitoring. Um, and I just remember I've never had anything knock me to the floor before. Mm -hmm. Um, but it knocked me to the floor because I knew that, um, this young person that I loved and adored and was my little brother, you know, was going to have to fight. Mm -hmm. And that was hard. And I think in all deaths, um, you know, you get the call and I feel like we had a lot of the calls right? and those were just like two of the first, the calls. Yeah. Um, and the calls just kind of got worse and worse, um, over thankfully eight years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is bonkers. Like you don't live with his kind of brain cancer, um, for eight years. Most people don't, but he was so healthy and right. young and, you know, just, um, just vigorous and, um, you know, my, jumping forward a, a few years, you know, he would travel back and forth from Houston um, to MD Anderson to their cancer research center. He availed himself of every test he possibly could. Um, any, any research trial 
um, you know, radiation, chemotherapy, whatever it was, he wanted to, to try it. And um, I remember one time, I think um, our mom went with him for one of his appointments. And she said that um, everybody was so proud of him because he was the healthiest cancer, yeah. pa- brain cancer patient they had ever seen. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, like he was. It's a strange badge of honor. Yeah. 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 Um, and I think that carried a weight with it that um, in reflecting over his eight years, you know, when we got the first call, you know, what do you do when you get a call that's devastating? You call your friends, you call people that are close to you. You say, this is awful. Um, and my little brother is going to go through this and everybody rushes and everybody says, oh my goodness, this is awful. I'm here for you. And then time passes, Mm -hmm. you know, um, I think Franchel had a good example of it just within um, putting him on the prayer list mm-hmm. at church. Um, yeah. So he, um, the, the parish where he was baptized, you know, uh, it, you know, entered into the church was our home parish. And um, as soon as he got sick, you know, as soon as he had his first uh, craniotomy um, resection, he immediately went on the parish prayer list. And um, as we said, like he was sick. I mean, he had brain cancer. He never didn't have brain cancer, but he had it for eight years. And uh, I don't know, maybe four or five years into, you know, his battle, I got a telephone call from the church secretary and, you know, it's hard not to get mad at people. And, and because nobody said, nobody ever says the right thing. And, and I, I have mercy in my heart because I'm sure I've said a hundred not right things to people. But um, the telephone call was, hey, Franchelle, um, we're just checking on your brother. He's been on the sick list for a long time. How's he doing? And I was like, he's doing so good. Thank you. Meaning that, you know, he's, he's still alive. Yes. He's, still, he's still, you know, yeah. And, and she said, um, so we're just going to go ahead and take him off the prayer list because I'm so glad he's, he's doing well. And my, like, I wanted to scream. Like I wanted to, like, he's doing well today, but he's, nothing has changed. He still has brain cancer. He's still not going to live through, like, we all know this is, I mean, barring like a a terrible tragic accident or something like this is the thing that's going to take him. Why are, why again, are we stopping praying for him? Why, Why are we letting everybody forget his name and, and forget to pray for him? Um, so anyway, that was just, I think, I think that it's just emblematic kind of what what Brie was saying is, you know, you do have that rush of support in the beginning. Um, because again, our grief started so early and was so long and not that anyone's grief isn't long lasting, but like we were grieving him before he died. It was very unpredictable because he would have months and months and months of being fine. And then, um, I lived in Little Rock, um, for maybe the first several, maybe the first year after his Mm -hmm. diagnosis. And then my husband um, took a job in Nashville and we moved away. So my sister, um, Franchelle was in that, in Little Rock as Jared's support system. So our family has a text chain (laughs) and um, for eight years, anytime my text would go off, my heart would stop a little bit because I wouldn't know is this Jared having a seizure and being unconscious? You know, he was found on bike paths behind restaurants. Um, He, there was one entire day he was missing. We didn't know where he was. So there were, there were many times during this journey that, that I think fed the, the grief of, um, 
that loss of what's normal. Mm-hmm. Maybe not that he was dead, but the loss of, of normalcy. Um, I will say though, that I did, I mean, I lived in constant fear of, is this it? Yeah. Is this the, um, is, you this, know, the phone is this the phone call? Um, and one, one of the times where he was missing and again, go, going missing because of, you know, sporadic seizure activity that put him unconscious and nobody knew how to get in touch with family or, you know, he'd be in the hospital or, you know, whatever the case may be. And but, because he's a guy in his twenties yeah. who doesn't take a lot of things serious. He took a lot of things seriously. I want to give him credit for that, but there was, he was still just a young guy. Yeah, he know? wanted the liberty that we all want when we're that young. Um, but well, he, he yearned to just feel normal again, you know, right. yeah. to, to, to be a 22, 23, 24 year old. Right. Just wanted to forget sometimes probably that he had cancer. A hundred, but, but we never could like as much as, and I'm sure he couldn't either. Um, but you know, it was always in the back of our minds. And I remember one night, um, getting a telephone call that he was missing from one of our brothers and, um, immediately, um, went to his apartment and went into his room and all of our, our brothers are, you know, they, they like firearms, they go to shooting ranges and, you know, that's, that's kind of some of the fun that they have. And, um, he had a, um, he had a handgun case uh, in the top of his closet that was open. I didn't see where the gun was and I just saw bullets on the ground and I thought, Oh, and you understand that you understand. Like, I don't know how you live like that. Um, but I was so like, I was scared out of my mind that, that he would have, you know, obviously taken his own life just in a, in a moment of complete despair, which we would have all understood because like we felt the despair. Um, and it turned out that, you know, I, I don't know where the gun was, but he didn't do anything. That wasn't, that, that wasn't the end of the story. Um, he was in the hospital. Um, he had had a seizure and um, was in um, the hospital when we, you know, found him. Um, I think that was the, that, that particular night. But in any case, everything was fine. But at that moment, I took the opportunity to like address it, like head on. Like I said, I want you to know these were all of my thoughts. Yeah. And I want you to know that if this, that, that if you get to the point where it is so dark, call, like call us, like we had to say the words, like you have to call us because we love you. And there's nothing that like, we just want to be there for you. And I just want you to know how much I love you and how devastated I was and, and would be if like to be able to say those words was, um, really cathartic. I think also for our relationship, because once you say those words, like I thought you killed yourself, you really can say almost anything. Right. Well, and I will say, I think in my, in my experience, uh, with Jared, the moment of his brain cancer diagnosis, every conversation was colored from that point on. Every, every time I saw him, I saw him through different eyes. Um, every, everything was colored by Mm -hmm. that diagnosis. And I think that carried a different, um, weight and as an older sibling, um, created a, a, an environment of constant anxiety and worry Mm -hmm. for him, for his mental health, for, you know, um, for his ability to look at a future and plan for a future. Um, one of the things that I don't know if I would call it grief, but I would say there was a lot of guilt, survivor's Mm -hmm. guilt, maybe, um, attached to those eight years because, you know, 
there's, there's six of us, people were getting married, people were having babies, Mm -hmm. you know, there were so many, so many joyous events and things that happened. And Jared was always a part of them. And he was always happy. Like he, I have pictures of him holding my brand new babies in the hospital (laughs) and in the back recesses of my heart was an ache. Mm -hmm. Every single time I saw him hold my babies or go to a wedding or hear of an engagement, there was this, there was this uh, bitterness Mm -hmm. and sadness because I knew those things weren't um, free for him, whether because of the walls he had to build so he could survive or because of the physical ailments that he had um, or emotional you know, trauma that he had to live through. I knew that those weren't his, those, those, the weight of his cross was more than just cancer. The weight of his cross was the loss of his twenties. Um, you know, the time that he, he never got to experience. And Mm -hmm. so there was a lot of guilt, I think related to that Mm -hmm. for me. Definitely. I I identify with that guilt too. Um, When I had our last baby, um, he was the first person to come into the hospital room and um, to hold him. And there was just something so just bittersweet. I mean, that's, that's the right word, bittersweet about seeing this man who would never be able to, you know, hold his own children be so moved to hold, you know, I mean, a 20 something guy, single guy coming into a delivery room (laughs) to hold my baby, you know, just minutes after he was born was just something that was very precious. And then, um, to know that, to, to know, like on a personal level, how much guilt I was trying to deal with, like you almost have to like temper your joy. Like it can't be too great because yeah. if it's too great, then I'm going to feel bad that it's too great. And he's going to see how great it is for me. And that's going to hurt him even more. Um, but one time, um, he was in the hospital and kind of, uh, he wasn't super lucid and, um, he was, he loved music. He just loved music. And he was like blaring the Beatles in his <laughs> hospital room. And I was sitting in there with my newborn baby in a stroller, um, just kind of, you know, being in the room with him. And he, he kind of turned down his music and looked over at me and, um, said, how old's that baby? And, you know, I said, however many months old he was, and he was like, my sister has a baby about that age. And, um, he said, I love kids. <laughs> and, you know, it just, it broke my heart. Um, that he, in that moment without lucidity, he revealed to me kind of his heart of like a little, what I always suspected, not, not was bitterness on his part was like regret on his part. And again, just kind of a, a window into the grief that not only we experienced, but we watched him experience. Cause it's a weird thing to watch someone grieve their own death ahead of time at that age. You know, we all get old. I mean, that's the right order of things. We all get old. And, you know, there's the joke that you get, hopefully you get so old that you want to go to heaven. Right. <laughs> um, and but, I think also specifically as a sibling and not a parent or a spouse, um, you're grieving in, on multiple levels of you watch your parents grieve mm-hmm. as well. You know, your parents are happy for you. Um, reaching all of these milestones in life, but you also see that they see that they have this one other child who isn't going to reach those. Mm -hmm. And I think as a, as a child and a sibling, um, 
maybe that feeds that level of guilt as well, mm -hmm. because you know, you can never, you can never fill the gap. You can never, um, you can't give it to your sibling and you can't give that to your parents mm -hmm. um, either. And so it's this, it's this weight that you wish you could take away, but you know that you can't. And, and all of that was before he ever died. Right. Like, no, yeah. That's the craziest thing. It's like such a big part of, you know, his story and all of our stories were all of the stuff that led up to him actually, um, you know, entering into those last days and weeks of his life, which were unexpectedly glorious and terrible at the same time. Yeah. Um, when his, when his, uh, cancer was just out of control and we knew that the end was near. He actually went to go live with our parents in Washington, DC. And, um, and it, it was, it was a time where, you know, our mom could be a mom to him in a way that, you know, she had not been able to for all of his adult life. Um, and kind of make connections um, there that, uh, we, again, you, you never really want that, but when it's there, you start to realize the beauty and, in the dying process. Um, and, uh, that was something I think that was particular to him because we knew where the end, we, we knew the end was coming soon. Right. His last year of life was, um, it probably started that spring of two, uh, 2016. Um, he was given, um, basically a, a one last option that he could try, which was a virus being injected into his, um, tumor to try and help his immune system fight his own cancer. It seemed very hopeful. He was ridiculously excited yeah. about it. Um, I still have emails from that he'd sent the pictures, our the pictures yeah. he sent our family. Like he was so, you could feel his hope. Mm -hmm. Um, and then by that summer, it was very evident that things were not going well. This, the monster was growing mm -hmm. at uh, a rate, a rate that it wasn't going to slow down mm -hmm. and there were no more options really. Yeah. Um, and then by the fall, we all got together for Thanksgiving at my house. And I will say that was the worst thing. I won't terrible. go into lots of detail, but I will say there were stomach bugs involved in my family and I was very pregnant. And, you know, so. compromised <laughs> cancer patient. Right. 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 Um, so we, we all got together for that Thanksgiving and I remember giving him a hug and thinking this could be really, this could be really a, this, um, he didn't look healthy. He didn't even look like himself anymore. The steroids had just altered his physical appearance. Um, his mental stat, you know, status was not the same. So I don't know that that blow was as heavy. Um, because it had been so long, but because it had been so long, it was almost hard to accept that this was really the end of the roller coaster ride. Well, and then we had the added, the added struggle at the very end of his alcoholism. And right. I think that's something else that, um, everybody can understand if you're dealing with any sort of traumatic thing is we need buffers and we need comforts. And, um, he, you know, turned to, um, our, I mean, our family has alcoholism in our family and he turned to alcohol for his buffer and comfort and it just got out of control. And, um, to I would see, say that summer, yeah, definitely. To, to see that, um, 
you know, just kind of take over this to, to take him over was devastating um, for me. Cause I saw it like every day, like every time I would see him, I knew that this was the thing. And it's hard to be critical of that because <laughs> what would you do? What exactly, you know? Um, but it did get to the point where we were like, you know, that this is actually the thing that's going to kill you. Mm-hmm. This is the thing that, um, that actually needs to be addressed. And so um, he did get into a treatment um, program and uh, that bought him some of the best days of his life um, because at the end of an eight-year battle with something that everybody knew that he was never going to beat, he beat another beast that we could all like cheer him on for. And that, you know, he died with 90 days sobriety and that was massive. It was massive. Um, but, you know, he did, he did, he actually did pass away um, on uh, January 10th. And, uh, so right after Christmas, we all, by some, by some miracle that can only attribute to Jesus, um, that right before Christmas, all of our siblings, all of our, our spouses released us from the obligations. And we all went to DC and just like stayed in his hospital room at, um, Walter Reed medical center for like a week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just being siblings. Well, and I think that, you know, I, I've, I've, in my reflections after his death, um, that's the miracle that I take from all that happened, um, is the, is the miracle that our family got to be together. Um, you know, I was 36, 37 weeks pregnant with my fourth child. My husband works very long hours. My sister, you know, had four children. Um, her husband works long hours. Um, our brother, uh, one of our brothers is, was he a medical student at the time? Either medical school or residency. residency. One went law school, one with three kids or but two kids and three children at the time. Did he have three? He had a newborn baby. Everyone had a lot of stuff going on. Right. And we all got to break free and just go be like a little um, nuclear family again. You know, yeah. like our mom and dad are in the room. All six of us are in the room. And, um, Again, I think Bruce, and we got right? to minister yeah. to him. Yeah, you know, and, and, say he, and he was his personality was very um, private, very very mm-hmm. private actually. Um, and I don't know if that was because of his illness that he had a lot of things he just didn't want to show everybody. But he, in those in that week, you know, he let us bathe him, yeah. help him go to the bathroom. This is a thirty year old man you know, and he let us do his nails, Mm -hmm. rub his feet, exercise his, his arm that he was so angry at because he couldn't feel it anymore. Um, and he was so thankful Mm -hmm. and not bitter. Mm -hmm. He had no bitterness. And it was to the point that I still kind of marvel at the fact that in losing everything that makes a man feel like a man, he gained this, um, serenity and this, this release that I think almost made me jealous of him, you know, not, not his suffering for sure, but just, it was a holy detachment that we're we're all supposed to be able to, you know, that's the goal is that things of this world aren't holding you back from, from your end, which is God. And he got there and his release was beautiful to watch. Mm, 
the losing of him will always be very, very painful, but watching someone release um, and just not give up because it's different. He's still every <laughs> single day, like he, any exercise that he was allowed to do, he did. Yeah. Physical um, therapy was important. <laughs> right. And we had to fight to get him physical therapy actually, <laughs> because the doctors were like, but he's Why not, would he need physical therapy? He's, he can't he's not ever, ever going walk. to leave here. Yeah. And you know, um, it does help to have so many medical people in our family because <laughs> there was a lot of side conversations with, with doctors um, saying, you know what? He needs this because he Just needs it. Like as, as respect because he's a human. And, and honestly, as a mom, uh, that is one lesson that I, that I will take away from it. And in respect for life, you respect that life and all that it needs through its process. Yeah. You know, and for Jared to feel um, respected and and have dignity, he needed to be able to exert any energy that he could until he couldn't anymore. You know, he gave up a lot and he he accepted all that he had to give up. But we were able to help support him in doing all that he could do up until the end, you know, even on Christmas day, I think he'd had a really bad morning. We were, we were there Christmas day and he'd had a really bad morning. Um, a lot of pain, physical pain in his head. Um, you know, the ice baths and the heat blankets and none of that was working that day. And he was not very lucid, but he begged my mom and dad to take him to Christmas mass. And, you know, it, it took a lot to get him there. He could barely sit up, you know, but we wrapped him in blankets and um, supported his head the best we could and um, took him there so that he could be a part of his last Christmas mass. Those things that I think are so beautiful Mm -hmm. that I, I would hope that as a sibling or a parent or a spouse or even a friend, you can appreciate that walk Mm -hmm. with anyone that is dying. Mm -hmm. And I think as, as Catholics, I mean, we're, we're Catholic and, um, as Catholics having those, um, those touchstones of the sacraments or something that was very important, um, to our family. Um, and, and even to Jared at the end, and I will say this, he was a typical, you know, 20 something guy who, you know, wasn't super religious, you know, during his twenties. I mean, he, you know, you want to think that you get this cross and you run to Jesus with it, he but did I, he did not do that <laughs> in the beginning for Which sure. No, but it's true. Um, I mean, I think that that's just the real story. And, but at the very end, um, you he know, clung. he did, he clung to the cross and every day, you know, his, again, his mind was, was leaving him, but every day he would ask my mom, did father bring me communion yet? Um, because he wanted the, the sacrament every single day. And, um, and those are things that we learn in our childhood are important. We're told in our childhood are important. We're catechized well, we're formed well, but when the end comes, I mean, they are things that you just hold so close and do, um, facilitate, you know, some comfort in the end that nothing else can give you. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, that's where nothing, your hope lies. Yeah. Yeah. Your I mean, hope it's does pure not grace. lie in survival of the body anymore. Yeah. Your hope lies in survival of the spirit. Yeah. Absolutely. When you were sharing Brie about, um, about bathing him, all I could, all that I kept, that kept coming to me is whenever, you know, Jesus allowed them to wash his feet at the end. 
And he just, he did that. And like, just how beautiful that, that was. I see so much of Jesus's story in Jared's story, you know, and you write about what you said, like not all of us run to the cross because <laughs> the cross is heavy. Yeah. Oh, so heavy. Um, and it's scary. Um, but that he was able to do that in the end, that he saw the, just the beauty of it and the importance and he just clung to it. That's so beautiful. And I would say too, that not, I a hundred percent agree. We saw Jesus in Jared a lot at the end there, but we also saw, um, the blessed mother and our mom. Oh yeah. Um, the fact that she gave him his last bath after he died, um, in the hospital room, you know, she washed every part of his body for him and was, and when you watch your parents um, lose a child, you also watch your parents die a little bit themselves. And you saw very clearly how when, um, when, you know, Simeon made the prophecy to the blessed mother that, you know, a sword would, you know, pierce her heart as well. We saw so clearly the sword piercing our, you know, our mother's heart as our brother was being formed into the person of Jesus, you know, as he moved into his death and into eternity, we, we believe and we hope with Jesus, we did see how that, um, that how a mother is so just heart connected to her child. Right. And when your child dies, I mean, obviously, you know, this Kelly, um, personally, but as a child to watch your parent who is still alive in the world, walking around, to see a part of them die and know that that's never going to come back either. Right. And I think one of the, uh, again, bittersweet things about losing an adult sibling. Um, cause I, I do think it has to be different. Every story of grief is so unique and different, you know, which is why I think people that are grieving feel so isolated. Mm -hmm. um, one of the unique things about watching an adult sibling um, pass away is, is appreciating their specific story yeah. um, and celebrating their specific miracles and their specific um, journey journey. And I would say that um, if there are things, if there are good things to be, to be gotten from someone dying in your life in that way, it does, it just as Bree said, it does help you appreciate and actually see things as miracles because there's no other explanation for them. There's no other way to, um, to deal with the reality of like, that should not have happened that way um, other than through appreciate God's hand, his divine intervention, um, directly impacting someone's life. Um, I think one of the, one of the stories that we all were witness to, like, and it was nothing short of a miracle was, um, our family are, um, well, all of our brothers are guitar players and, um, we had guitar in the hotel room. I mean, in, sorry, in the hospital room. And one night the lights were low cause Jared's head was hurting and, you know, the lights were hurting his, him and, we just started singing the songs that we always sing together. Um, one of them is, uh, uh, 
what is the what is the one that we always Linda Ronstadt? Yeah, there's a Linda Ronstadt song uh, about actually weed, wife, and wine. <laughs> no, that wasn't the okay. one. It was the one. It was the one. Because... It was the one about the mother who lost a oh, child. Which did is, we sing that? We did it, sing oh, that, that song. Is... It didn't make any sense, wow. but we sang it in the, okay. in the hospital room. But after we sang, and it and it was we didn't sing it to be you know syrupy, sappy, sweet. It was just one that we all know the words to, and we were looking <laughs> for songs to sing. And after the song. Um, my mom had been holding on to his foot or his hand or something. And after the song was over, she leaned over because it was just, it was just a sweet moment, you know, when everybody's in the room singing together, she leaned over and she kissed him and he said, Oh, there it is. Mm-hmm. And we were all like, is he what see, is it, Jared? Is he Are you things? okay? Do yeah. you see angels? Well, tell yeah. us what you see, man. Right, because he did have, <laughs> yeah, he had like some some very not like hallucination type moments. We're like, Are you okay, Jared? What are you seeing? And he said, It's grace. And I think our mom said, what is? And he said, you know, your kiss. Mm -hmm. And so she kissed him again. And he said, there it is again. And all of us, it took our breath away. Yeah. Because like, that's, that is, um, I mean, it's a miracle, but that is what grace does. It's not something like magical that's floating in the air that hopefully some special people get to feel sometimes like it's tangible and we give it to each other especially in those moments of, of, you know, so just so, so much suffering. And, um, and really, I mean, like it would have, it could have felt like a moment of despair. We just sang a song about like a, a mother. I think she actually, in a song, she lost her son to jail. Yeah, she's <laughs> visiting him in jail. Mother's love. She visits him in jail. It's very strange that we sang that as five-year-olds. <laughs> that we still know all the lyrics. It actually might be a Dolly Parton. Five-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> We never understood with the lyrics. Uh, no, we just sang them in harmony. <laughs> Cajuns teach their children weird music sometimes. <laughs> Very true. Very true. Yeah. Then the, like when you said like the word grace to me, it, um, what keeps coming, I don't know why it kept coming this week, but I guess it's for this moment, um, the word love mm-hmm. and John 15, 13 is my favorite scripture. You no know, greater love than to lay down your life for another. And just, how as a, a parent, like your mo- your mother loving him in all of those moments, that was, that was God's grace. Mm-hmm. So if we can just interchange those two words, I mean, they can mm-hmm. so easily be interchangeable. Mm-hmm. And so- it was a gift to watch, to, to watch what a parent, the extent that a parent can go in laying down their life for their child. We got to see that firsthand, but I will say this, that I was so also proud of my siblings Um, watching, you know, my my sister cut his toenails and rub his feet and watching my brothers pick his body up and help it walk a few more steps just so that he could feel his feet on the ground. And, you know, I've got this one picture of one of our brothers who was particularly close to Jared. Um, They shared a love of playing the guitar. Just let me like it it was in them. And um, Jared was holding the guitar and he just wanted to strum just a couple more times before he lost, you know, he couldn't feel his left hand or arm anymore. So he could support a guitar, but he could no longer, um, make chords. And so one of our brothers got behind him and played the chords for him while he strummed so that he could feel like he was playing the guitar. And, you know, those aren't, you know, it didn't take a lot for him to do that, but he, he did kind of lay down his life away. Like he, he, he helped his brother again, experience that. And Jared laid down his pride. Yes. You know, and again, I, I think that's, that is the message that I, I, I remember about him, you know, how many 30 year old men 
could sit in a hospital gown and let their brother and, and I, I, Jared loved guitar so much. He loved being able to do those things. He loved to exercise. He loved to bike. He loved to climb. He loved to be physically active. This is a man that literally lost all of those abilities. And instead of being angry, he allowed himself to be embraced and, and helped like a child, you know, in walking and playing guitar and everything. And I just, I think that that's such a beautiful, um, when, when, when Jesus said, you know, you must become like a child to come to me. I think of that's what mm-hmm. happened to my brother. He had to become helpless mm-hmm. and he, and he was only then able to surrender his entire heart to God mm-hmm. and not in a cheesy way, but in, in the most pure, um, sense. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, that is, that was something something to behold. Yeah, it really was. And I think that, um, another thing, again, we, we keep talking about like, because again, for us, his death didn't, his death wasn't the start of the grief for us. So, I mean, I feel like we've talked so much about like the before, the before like the eight years before of, of watching him die. Although he would prefer to say watching him live with cancer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but truly, you know, it was, it was a slow, it was a very long and slow goodbye, but when he did die, like we still did all the things that normal people do and they lose some weight. It still comes as a shock. Yeah. It's like, even though we had eight years to know that this was going to be the end, the night that we got the telephone call, one o'clock in the morning phone call, it, it still was like, it can't be. I mean, it was supposed to get better. It's just so out of order. Um, because that death is out of order. That was, a, that was a different wave of guilt. Yeah. You know, that was, yeah. a, that was the finale. That was the final guilt. That was the final um, acceptance yeah. of what, what is the nightmare that is saying goodbye to someone you love. Mm-hmm. Um, before, I think specifically before the time, you know, in, in a disordered way. Um, well, and the weird thing that also is that the companion to the um, guilt was also the the relief, oh, yeah. which just, oh, it was the weirdest thing. It was the weirdest thing to, um, your text message ding didn't, didn't feel the same. Yeah. Yeah. And y'all had been living with hope for eight years, you know, yeah. and that's beautiful because, you know, some people can't do that. They can't even live with the, with the hope that possi- possibly he would be cancer, you know? So I think at that time, you know, whenever it finally happens like that, it, it can't be, it's because we have to come and accept that that's the end and that's hard. Well, and because we're never really supposed to give up hope. I mean, it's such a weird truncation of like, you have to have hope until there's no hope anymore. And the hope only ever ends when there's like, not that it ever ends, but like it, it, it's over when he dies. Like there's no more, he's not going to come alive again. It's over now. And, and so at that point you kind of have to, the hope becomes like, well, I hope he's in heaven. You know, I hope There's a different kind of hope, but I mean, it, it was just such a weird break and what we had been accustomed to. And then the after and the after you can't ever even prepare for that. As long as you prepared for his death, you can't prepare for the after. And I think as siblings, um, it was very hard to watch your parents look so lost Mm -hmm. and look so sad. 
And, and you had the same sadness inside of you, but you knew that like you couldn't lean into your own sadness in that moment. You, you know, I think Fran, Shell, and I were on the phone planning the, the food for after the funeral. You know, we, we, we knew that our mother who actually really does like to host things well, um, we knew that she didn't have the capacity to do that, you know, and our brothers would made phone calls, you know, to help plan the funeral, um, pick out the, 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 um, I don't know what you call, what What do Marines wear? Their uniform. Yes, it's. I think it's called the class A's. I don't know. That could be the word. Something. But you know, it it took. It it was in that moment that being a part of a big Catholic family was actually really kind of nice because not one of us had to take on the entire weight of of Jared's loss. Mm -hmm. It was all of us could pitch in a little bit and do a little bit to take some of the pain away from our parents, um, and just let them grieve. Mm -hmm. Let them feel sad, feel the loss. Um, Cause in your sadness, all you wanted was to run to your parents. I'm sure. Yeah. 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 Oh, and, and that was another thing, you know, I think the spouse, the, our spouses should all get some sort of, and my in-laws should all get some sort of um, award for how little questions they asked mm-hmm how, um, quick they were to come, quick they needed. were to say, yeah. yep, whatever you need, go. Um, my OB at the time <laughs> actually coached me in, um, how to get through the, the airlines because <laughs> driving to DC would have been more dangerous than flying. I was 38 weeks pregnant when he died. Um, so I, there was a lot of support. Um, and I was thankful to have my living siblings, in that moment to lean on and call and, um, check in. And I think that's built in because we're siblings and we all lost the same person, but it also opened our eyes to when other people lose people, because I never was, I, I, I never saw that cross on other people's shoulders before losing my brother. I never, I mean, of course I would always bring, you know, if someone died, I would bring someone a meal. You know, I would, you know, say, I hope that you're doing okay. I'm praying for you. But now I kind of know the things that are important to not, not even perfect to say, but like, just say, you're sorry, just do the thing, put something on their door. Don't require them to see you or talk to you. Like there are things that you just know. Don't ever say time heals. That's, you know, I think that's probably pretty important. Don't say that. (laughs) Don't ever say that. Or it's all going to be okay because it may not, mm-hmm. you know, it may take a really long time for something to be okay. And there are days that even now it's not okay. Yeah. You know, you can be sitting in car line and um, a song comes on the radio and you go, well, shoot, that was, I know that song <laughs> yeah. um, or a smell or even goodness, the change of seasons. There's something specific about there's, they call them triggers nowadays, yeah. but there, there, there's always those little bitty, you call them ninja, ninja moments. Yeah. yeah. Ninja attacks. Um, and I think they're specific for every person mm-hmm. in a different way. You know, I think we're three years out now. The first year was so numb. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe, maybe your body wants to be numb just so that you don't have to feel how bad it hurts and, and how hard it hurts to watch your other siblings suffer and your parents suffer. Um, and if you're a mother of, or a father of small children, answer all the questions. Um, but you go so numb. Um, and then in a second year, 
was maybe a little less difficult just because I knew how hard the holidays would be. I knew what they would feel like. Um, so you could prepare. Yeah, mm-hmm. you could prepare your heart at least to go into it with realistic mm-hmm. expectations that the family picture is going to be super awkward every single time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you're always going to feel like something's missing. Um, and I, and I think there's an acceptance there that it's not okay, but it's, um, it's just, it's a new reality. And there's a weird delicate balance of figuring out like what is going to like bring everybody to tears and, you know, when it's just okay to just talk about how funny he was and, you know, and um, something he would laugh at or make a very dry comment about. Yeah. I think it's important like that y'all do that to, to remember all the good times. Cause I think sometimes like we can get, you know, suffocating, suffocated in, you know, our misery. I know for yeah. me personally, so having someone to remind me all of the times, you know, and remind each other of things that we might've forgotten or experienced different. Those That's so important that, you know, families do that. And one of the things that I, uh, I've always said, like, even with Ryan, my husband, when we were journeying through grief, uh, and through the suffering, there was so much intimacy, mm-hmm. but that doesn't, it's not just like spousal intimacy is what I'm talking about. It's just about like heart yeah. intimacy and just about how y'all as siblings, I'm sure that as hard as it was, this has brought in y'all so much closer. I mean, for, cause even for men, you know, it's hard to, ex- to explain how you're feeling, but going through this together, y'all family probably grew closer. If I would Absolutely. Oh, you, you, you've guessed right. I mean, right on, like, you know, I don't think that I would have talked to my brothers before Jared really was getting sick and dying as much as I do now. Mm. Um, and not because I don't love them or care about their lives, but there is that you need that touchstone. Right. Um, well, I think once you know, what it is to lose something, Mm -hmm. you know what it is to have something. Yes. And so you, and not even perfectly, but you, you at least are reminded more often to cherish it Mm -hmm. and to, you know, take care of it. Well, and you start thinking about like, once you have gone through, like, this was the last time I talked Mm -hmm. to him. This was the last text I had with him. Mm -hmm. This was the last thing that he ate for dinner. This was, you know, all of those last things. You start thinking about last things with other people and you want all of those potentially last things to be, to be good. And, um, yeah. Yeah. And just to make sure people are always feeling like they're loved. I mean, not Mm -hmm. that you don't have, you know, terrible days and hard times in our immediate families, but you, when you go through a loss like that, you realize that if this is the last, I at least want it to be that you know that I loved you. Well, and you know that small things are small and big things are big. Mm-hmm. You know, we can easily identify things that I think a lot of the the people in the world um, can get. Uh, we we call it get their panties in a wad. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it doesn't affect me because whenever yeah. you lost someone that you love, those things don't matter anymore. Yeah. They're just something that I got to deal with, you know? So I, f- I find like my attitude towards, um, discomforts or little bumps in the road, I can address those and, you know, 
I don't allow myself um, really to be angry or aggravated when someone cuts me off in the road. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to make it to school safe today, you know, just to see the value of, of all of these moments, you know, because we know what it is to lose someone and how hard that is. And we appreciate all the other things. And I think another lesson, at least for me, was that um, the, 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 the lesson in letting go and not being scared to, to let go. And um, it came very quickly after Jared died for our family because we moved from Little Rock where we had been with him, you know, for years and years um, as his, you know, closest family, basically. And, you know, I would drive around town and see all of the places that we had been together. And I mean, I was, I was basically his taxi for the last year of his life and, you know, driving him places a lot of times. And, you know, those ninja attacks were just like huge. And, um, I mean, it's a constellation of reasons, but our family, um, moved from a place that I never thought I would move from. And I felt in a way like he taught me how to do that. Mm -hmm. Like he taught me how to let go of things and, and, and not, not feel like they are so essential to my existence because this world isn't forever. Nothing is forever. And to take things just as you said, like less seriously, not, not that we're not taking life seriously, but like, this isn't it. Well, your perspective a hundred percent changes. And I think in the context of having, um, faith and, you know, more specifically our Catholic faith, um, when I, when, you know, when explaining death to my children or even just learning to accept death myself, what is my goal here? Is my goal to stay here forever because none of us are getting out of here alive? Mm -hmm. You know, what is my goal here? My goal here is to know, love, and serve God so that I can be with him. Mm -hmm. And so it really simplifies Mm -hmm. what your earthly goals are when you see death before you. Mm -hmm. Um, when you see when you see somebody die well, Mm -hmm. you you want to do the same. Mm You know, when you see, um, and I said goodbye to other people before in our life, you know, but I, I think this was such a intimate and specific type of loss, um, that it, it simplified a lot of things just in, in my faith of why am I here? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm not here to be the most popular. I'm not here to be the most beautiful. I'm not here to be the most, um, liked, I'm not, you know, all of those things that I think are normal, that people, it's a human thing to want. Those are natural desires. Right. But I think when you strip away what your purpose is here, um, it makes it easier to be kinder to people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and more accepting of other people's flaws. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because you know that any transformation isn't, isn't from you. Any, Mm -hmm. any, any transformation is from God. Um, All grace. All grace is from him. Amen. Amen. So if there's one thing that you could both say on how have you risen above suffering or how, um, or just one tip to take away as a sister, as sisters of loss, um, what would you what would you tell another sibling who's going through this? Um, I, I believe that there is no one way to feel. 
There is no right way to feel. There is no wrong way to feel. Um, and that your guide has to be to let yourself experience the emotions, whatever they may be. Um, and then look back towards your faith, cling to it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you feel distance from it, don't walk away, mm-hmm. lean in. Um, one of the best conversations after my brother died was with a priest. And I have always had a pretty easy faith, um, maybe childlike in that, you know, I just accepted that there is a God. And then when you lose something like a brother, um, I, I, I met with a priest and I, I said, yeah, I just don't feel, I don't feel the connection to God right now. I, I know there's a God and I trust in a good God, but I don't feel it. And I don't know what to do with that. And I don't know if that means I've just lost my faith. And he was so generous um, that he said, you know, anytime you have those feelings, that's not a crisis of faith so much as it's, it's an opportunity to deepen your faith. So- um, and so I think that would be, if I had advice, that would be it. That Mm -hmm. if you get those lost feelings, know that you're not the only one to have them and that don't walk away. Um, That might just be God asking you to come further towards him. Absolutely. And I think I would say that coming from a a big Catholic family, you know, um, something that our parents, I think, instilled in us and something that I definitely tell my kids, Brie, I'm sure you tell your kids this, especially when they're fighting is these are the friends that God gave you. Like these are the people, these are the friends that God wanted you to have because he put them in your family and he gave them to you for a reason. And it was only through losing one of those friends that I was able to appreciate my other friends, you know, my, 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 the other siblings that, that God gave me and, um, and, you know, just cherishing those and being more thankful for those relationships because they are different than, and I have some very deep and abiding friendships in the world, but nothing is like a sibling. Nothing is like a sibling. And, um, and even the sibling that's in heaven, you know, I talk to him. Yeah. Um, and I think that's important too, Mm -hmm. because there are, there are siblings that are one of two, you know, yeah. and that when they lose that sibling, yeah. they don't have another one to lean on mm-hmm. to. And that can be its own special cross. Yeah. But, you know, I, I still like a weird person. I'll still be like, Jared, wasn't that funny? <laughs> <laughs> I did that too. I did that too. <laughs> you know, or if I see a cardinal, I'm like, Hey, what's up, man? <laughs> like, so I think I, I see you. Don't think I don't see you. Right. I know you're winking at me. Um, so I don't, yeah. I mean, I don't know that you ever say goodbye fully to those friends, but I, I do want to honor our parents for one goodbye that, um, that I thought was so beautiful and they orchestrated it. And it was, um, the, so Jared died on January 10th, but wasn't buried for some time later because he was buried at Arlington national cemetery and you have to wait for burial there. So he had his funeral mass shortly after his death. And then we all went back again for the burial and they kept his body, um, uh, in reserve. I don't know how you say that. I don't know what the right word is, um, at the, at the funeral home. And then the night before his burial, um, just the six, well, just the six of us, um, and our parents, we all went. And again, this was one of those times where all of our, our spouses were like, y'all just go. Yeah. Y'all just go be a family. And we all went into the, um, the room at the funeral home and they opened Jared's casket and we said a family rosary together. 
and all growing up, our parents made us say family road trip. And it was not really fun. It, we were not <laughs> happy about it. We were not happy about it. And, um, and they did it again one last time. And that is something like family traditions and um, leaning into your faith. And um, that was one thing that my parents did really, really well was um, just brought us back to um, family prayer and being together. And, you know, we have, you know, siblings who are on different paths of faith. You know, nobody's, nobody's all, all the same. But nobody said no. But no one said no because that's that's how we were raised and um and they all helped us say goodbye um as a as a family unit in a very, very special way so um our parents did a good job yeah they did and they still do they yeah still do. <laughs> well, that's beautiful um any anything else that y'all want to add any last send-offs uh I just think that if anybody loses a sibling, um, I think that it's, it's, it is, again, it's one of those, we've said this before, we said it with you, Kelly, I think, um, is it's a club you never want to be in, but once you're in it, like, you just know how other people feel um, as best you can, but in, definitely in a way that you would not have known prior. And so um, just being compassionate and, um, you know, I, I went to uh, Adoration Weekly with um, an older couple, and uh, shortly before Jared died, I think they lost a daughter, and they had another daughter, and I never talked to that other daughter in like my whole life, and as, she, as soon as she lost a sister and I lost a brother, I'm like, this is my new friend. Absolutely. You see people's pain, whereas mm -hmm. before you would never be able to. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Well, I thank y'all so much for joining me today, and you know, Brie, you were the smart one that didn't wear makeup today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I didn't plan. <laughs> well, you're smart and you scored. <laughs> well, I want to just thank you um, again both for, for joining us and um, for sharing your hearts. And I know that God is going to use this to help others. And um, just God bless y'all. I will be praying for your family and please pray for mine. We are. Thank you. And for Redbird. Yes, absolutely. Yes, thank you for creating a, a space for people to share their journey, um, not just in grief, but in triumph and in journey, because I think that's, that's important, you know, to, yeah. to sit in, to sit in your sadness, to sit in your grief, but then to know that there is a road beyond there. Um, absolutely. We always say that we, um, we show the, the love, the loss, and the redemption because you have to have all three um, to give people hope. You know, that's like you said, the hope is is there before and our hope changes. Yeah. Heaven, it just changes, but mm -hmm. it's so important. So, well, thank y'all again. And I hope y'all have a great rest of your day. God bless. You too. Bye, thank Kelly. You, Kelly. Thank you for listening today to the Grieving Together show. Our hope is that you were able to find comfort in your grieving journey. To find out more about what resources and events Redbird Ministries has to offer, please visit us at www.redbird.love or visit us on Facebook or Instagram. Please make sure that you subscribe to our email list so that you can stay current on what is offered. If our show has touched your heart and you would like to make a charitable donation, you can do so on our website at www.redbird.love/donate. 
Lastly, if you would like to sponsor an episode, please reach out to us at kelly at redbird.love. We leave you today in the two hearts. May God protect you and keep you, and God bless you.